together has probably had some time in their life when they felt like God was not hearing their prayers, like there was some kind of barrier between them and God. Uh, For some people, this feels like, you know, I'm laying awake in bed at night and I'm praying to God, but I feel like the ceiling is acting more like a mirror or a brick wall and things just aren't getting up to him. Or maybe some doubt that he's really there and he's really listening or some sense of separation going on there. And the question that I hope we can look at and find an answer to this morning uh, is, can we settle that? Does God really hear my prayers or not? That's kind of what we're asking this morning. Uh, Because the fact is, you can feel sometimes like God really hears you and feel other times like there's not a very great connection there. Uh, But the truth is, how you feel about whether God is listening doesn't really tell you whether he's actually listening or not. Your feelings aren't a very good truth teller as to whether God hears your prayers. You can be in the deep, just the depths of despair and discouragement and think he is not hearing you, but he is right there nearer than a brother and you don't realize it. Or scary flip side, it's possible to think you're going through life just fine and you and God are on the same page and this is great and wonderful, not realizing the great separation that you have created between yourself and God. Uh, that's possible, and if you were to do that, if you were to walk through thinking everything was fine, but there actually was a big chasm between you and him, and he wasn't even listening to your prayers anymore, you wouldn't be the first person that had happened to. Can you believe that? Uh, I'm going to look, before we get to our sermon text today, I'm just going to show that through Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 3. The people of Israel were once in a state where they thought God was hearing their prayers, and he was not. Here's what he says to them. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But, here's the hard news, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, and your lips have spoken falsehood, and your tongue mutters wickedness. That's a serious thing, and we've got to take that seriously if we will get anywhere today. If we just come to a question like, does God hear my prayers, and we give a quick yes and in and out and we're done and we assume he does, oh no, we could head ourselves to great destruction if we do that. The scary thing is if we have ever lied or if we have ever done something wicked in our hands, as was said in this text, or we've ever done anything else wrong, we have put a separation between ourselves and God. And we would have no reason to expect that he would hear our prayers. Now, he may hear them anyway. He is merciful. We have no entitlement, no reason to expect you should hear my prayers if we have done wrong. And that is the problem that I want all of us to reckon with this morning. If we're going to ask, does God really hear my prayers? Does he really receive the worship that we offer? We have to ask the deeper question, which is why? Why would he love the worship of sinners? Why would he hear the prayers of people that have rebelled against him. And the reason we wanna ask that hard question is that if you follow it all the way to the answer that the Bible gives, it can give you a confidence in the darkest of nights, in the depths of doubt, in the depths of despair, a confidence that cannot be shaken because you can have a clear answer as to whether God hears you. 
Some of you are new with us, and what you need to know about us and what we do in this part of the hour is, uh, you know, we believe, we believe a lot of things around here. One of them is that every sentence of this book, of the Holy Bible, speaks to every moment of our lives and points us to Jesus. And so what we do here Sunday after Sunday is we pick one book of the Bible, there's 66 books in the Bible, we pick one at a time, go through it from start to finish and follow the story of that book, look in every sentence to see what kind of meaning can we find how can this point us to Jesus? And at the end of the story we looked at last week, this strange figure named Melchizedek showed up. And what we're going to do today is we're going to hit pause on the story of Genesis, and we're going to follow the theme that Melchizedek begins all the way through the scriptures, eventually finding the answer to this nagging question, why would God bother to hear my prayers? Why would God receive my worship? Because his presence there is strange, and if you follow that curiosity trail all the way, we can find some amazing things. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. We read these last week. We'll read them again. The backstory is that the hero of this little portion of the Bible named Abram has just won a great military battle against all odds. It's actually probably the first battle in the Bible. He wins it, he comes back, and this strange figure comes out of Jerusalem to greet him. It says, Then, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. So that's the appearance of Melchizedek. And if you're just flying through Genesis, it probably looks pretty insignificant. Uh, but to the original readers of this story, it would have stuck out uh, very much so. Like it would stick out because, uh, you know, Jerusalem doesn't get priests for another 500 years after Israel goes through the desert and gets there. Then they have, why is there a priest in Jerusalem? And they don't get kings in Jerusalem for another 100 or two years after that. Why is there already a king in Jerusalem that God seems to bless and show favor to? And if you can wrap your mind around that, well, then there's even the problem that in Israel, the priests and the kings have to be two different people from two different tribes. How does this one person fulfill both of these roles before there were any priests or kings in Jerusalem? That would stick out as so strange to the original people that were reading this book. And so you can think of his presence there like a, like a thread sticking out of a knit sweater. Like, I don't know if you've ever like complimented a friend on a sweater before and you're, oh yeah, that pattern's really cool and I like the sleeve. And then you notice like there's like an inch and a half like thread just sticking up and you're like, the impulsive person in you is like, do, do you, do you, you don't want me to get, do you mind if the, it, you know, right? And you just want to yank on this thread, right? Well, if you do, sometimes what you'll find is that that thread goes through the whole sweater and you're just starting the huge problem by unraveling this thing, right? Well, Melchizedek is kind of like that. He sticks out like the thread. And if you yank on that thread, what you'll find is that it goes through the whole Bible, it goes through the, the sleeve of the sweater and around the front and around the back and around through the whole message of the scripture. This guy keeps popping up and eventually, he gives us a really satisfying answer to the question that I had you ask earlier. So 
What's kind of going on here is uh, they are at the point, uh, for the original readers here, uh, where they have gone through, um, you know, if they're reading through the book of Genesis, they already know a few of the things that we have been talking about so far. Like they already know uh, that, that people are sinners and that we can't go into God's presence. We're gonna know that from the book of Genesis because uh, we saw the story of Adam and Eve and we saw how they sinned against God and so they were cast out of God's presence in the garden. There's already this separation there. So already wondering, okay, how can someone who is sinful go in God's presence? But then they see all these glimmers of hope like uh, you know, Enoch just gets to walk with God even though he's a sinner and then he doesn't die. He just goes up and who knows what happens to him. God takes him. All these neat little things that happen. You know, Eve gets promised that one of her descendants is going to come crush the serpent, so maybe there's some hope there for poor sinners who, who have been deceived into following the serpent like all of us. Uh, Abram gets promised that one of his descendants will be a blessing to all of the earth. Like there's all these little glimmers of hope, but the norm is you live a life separated from God and then you die. That's what most people in Genesis do. That's what most people today do. You live a life separated from God and then you die. So there's little glimmers of hope and Melchizedek is one of those glimmers of hope. Uh, so before we go any farther, I just want us to look at this through the people of Israel's eyes. They would have been the first people to read this book right after it was written. Uh, let's, let's look at it how they look at it, and then we'll look at it through our eyes again. So they're reading through Genesis. They've read all that stuff there. At the same time, God is setting up for them this whole system of sacrifices and a temple and a tabernacle and all this stuff. Like they were slaves in Egypt. God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They're wandering through the desert and God begins to give them this whole system. And it's supposed to be a picture of God's heavenly sanctuary where he truly dwells, uh, sitting on the throne, ruling all of creation. Uh, and he tells Moses, I want you to set up a sanctuary it's going to be a picture of my sanctuary in heaven and set up priests and set up this whole thing and it will teach your people how my sanctuary works in heaven. And so he says things like this to him. This is Exodus 25 uh, where he tells him to set up this sanctuary. First it's a tent, later it's a temple. Both of them have very similar design. He says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Uh, this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant insects, uh, incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle, as the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. All right, so we got this picture of, this place must have been amazing. All these stones and gold and this bronze and all these beautiful fabrics. And God is telling him, you have to construct it just so, like do it just like I tell you. Uh, the reason for that is this thing is a picture of God's heavenly room where he dwells in heaven, of his sanctuary there. Well then, there are instructions for priests 
who are supposed to go in the temple where God dwells or in the tabernacle where God dwells. Uh, and they're supposed to offer things and do all sorts of things like that. And so we get instructions for priests too and the wonderful clothes that they were to wear. This is in Exodus 28. I'll read it to you next. He says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him among the sons of Israel to minister as priest to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons who I am endowed with a spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, uh, that he may minister as priest to me. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work and a turban and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and, fine, and, and the fine linen. So now you've got this beautiful place where God dwells and these wonderfully arrayed people who can go into God's presence for you. Because again, the big problem is sinners can't go into God's presence. Here's the thing, though, that was just supposed to be a picture of God's heavenly dwelling. It wasn't the final solution. It wasn't like everything that they needed. It was just a picture to teach them how God's room in heaven works. And Hebrews says this uh, really clearly in Hebrews 8, 4 through 5. He says, there are those who offer gifts according to the law, that's the priests, who serve as, and here it is, who serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, see, he says, that you make all things in according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So we get into here, there's, there's a holy room, there's holy people that can go into it. And it's not that it isn't real, it's just that it's a picture. It's as real as a picture of somebody you love. You know, it's just it's a picture of something better that is up in heaven, something permanent and something lasting. So these Israelites start getting into the habit, right? Uh, they want to go offer something to God. And no, you can't just do whatever, you can't just take the barley you want to offer him and just throw it up in the air to him and, and he'll receive it. You've got to go to the special place where where God lives. And then you've got to give it to the priest, the special person who can go and offer it to God for you because you can't go into God's presence, but he can and he can do all this for you. And then let's say you've sinned and you want to ask for forgiveness for a certain thing. You have to bring a spotless, perfect lamb out of your flock and offer it up to the Lord, but you got to go to the temple or tabernacle to do it because that's where he is. And you can't offer it yourself. You give it to the priest and the priest has to offer it for you. So over and over again for all their festivals and all all their sacrifices and all the time that they needed to ask for forgiveness, they're doing this process, going to the place, giving it to the priest, and the priest has to offer it for them. That was the system they were living in. And the thing is, there was enough built into the system to show that it wasn't perfect and it wasn't meant to be perfect. Right, There's enough in there to show this is just a picture. It's not the final reality. It's not what's going on forever. Uh, for one thing, if you had sinned against the Lord, you went in and you offered a lamb and that lamb covered your sins, you would get, you'd be forgiven, right? Uh, and the priest would pronounce you that you were forgiven and you'd walk away forgiven. But then the next time you sinned, you had to go offer another one. And so, you know, you'd, you'd walk down the temple steps and somebody would ask you, hey man, you got any change? And you're like, no, I don't have any, oh man, I just lied. 
right? Turn right back around and go like right back up and offer another lamb and then you do it again. And eventually you very quickly run out of animals to offer to the Lord because you have to keep offering stuff over and over again because you keep sinning and none of them can cover for your sins once and for all. So there's enough there that they ought to have looked and seen like this isn't perfect, this isn't forever, there's something better awaiting us. Uh, For another problem, actually the book of Hebrews uh, brings that out and uh, I'll show that to you as well. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, one through four. Uh, He says, for the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, it's not gonna make you perfect forever. It's just gonna forgive the things you recently did. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, right? You wouldn't have to keep going back, offering more, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin year by year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So those animals can't take away your sins forever, they just do the past ones, and then you sin again and you got another problem. Well, for another problem, and I think any like self-respecting cynic among Israel would have noticed this, uh, you can't go to God because you're a sinner, right? Um, but you can give the offering to another sinner and he can go to God for you, right? And you see how messed up this other guy is and you're thinking, wait a minute, I can't go because I'm a sinner, but he can go even though I saw what he did with the temple wine the other day. Like I know how messed up this guy is. He's a sinner like me. Why does he get to go in God's presence and, and I don't? And the answer is that he was appointed and not everyone was appointed. But there is enough for the people to see like the priests are sinners too and this whole system isn't perfect. And the book of Hebrews points that out as well. It says, for every high priest taken among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to both offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And it says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. So your sacrifices are having to go through some other guy who's got to offer his own sacrifices because he's as messed up as you are. And they're seeing this and they've got to realize this is not perfect. Uh, And then finally, because the priests were also sinners like them, the priests kept dying and kept having to be replaced. Uh, And Hebrews points that out too. It says the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So all sorts of intentionally built cracks in the picture so that you would realize this is not the final thing. This priesthood system is not what's gonna be here forever. It's just a picture, right? You're having to offer your offerings through another sinner who is going to die. Uh, The offerings that you offer can only cover you for what you just did. They can't cover you forever. There's got to be more out. And then they're reading through Genesis noticing that a great descendant of Eve is going to come and crush the serpent and and then maybe it'll be the same as the descendant of Abraham it's going to be a blessing to all of the world someone better must come along because this thing doesn't totally add up that's where they are and then they read about this strange Melchizedek figure and they're saying huh That's different. A a priest that's not the same as this priest. 
A priest that's so great that Abram tithed to him, and so we all, even these priests, tithed to him. Something is going, something better than this priesthood must be coming if there are other priests besides ours out there. So that's the hope that it would give them to see that strange character there. If we fast forward in the story, many generations later, uh, eventually they were given more reason to hope that perhaps a better priest was coming, perhaps something more wonderful. Perhaps their every hope would come true. They eventually did make it into their promised land. They started living under the law there. It did kind of break down. Uh, They got a king who was a great and mighty king. First Saul, who was mighty but fell, and then David, who ruled so justly and wisely for them, who conquered for them. Uh, and then he passed it on to his son and they had kings and kings and kings they were ruling it was wonderful until things started to break down but one of them probably the greatest king David was promised that he would have a son and come rule forever after him and he writes of this coming son of his like his son is going to have an eternal dynasty it says one of his descendants And here's a song, uh, an oracle that he writes about him that gave them great hope. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, David only answers to God, right? So this coming son, he calls him my Lord. There's only one person. Maybe maybe this coming king is, is God himself. Well, he says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew, so he will rule in strength. And the people will love his rule so much that we'll just voluntarily offer ourselves to him as subjects with glad shouts, just so glad over it. So this great king is coming, and then it says the strangest thing. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) There's an order now of Melchizedek. Like there was just this one strange priest. Now there's a whole, like what do we not know about what God is doing behind the scenes? Uh, So that means the Lord, the God in heaven would come down I mean he would have to be God if he's David's Lord and he would be with us and rule forever and be our priest forever and somehow God had that planned out 5,000 years ago when this strange priest king shows up in the Bible and he gives us just a little hint of it oh it's so great so They have enough to hope that a better king is coming, a king that will defeat our enemies or crush the serpent as promised to Eve, who will be a blessing to the whole world and we'll all offer ourselves voluntarily to him. And thanks to Melchizedek, we know that he will be our priest as well. He will go to God on our behalf since we cannot. So David only answers to the Lord and David calls this coming king his Lord, so that means it's God in heaven. Uh, So the New Testament 
traces David's lineage, you know, who's king after him and who's king after that, and you know, who is David's heir in the current generation, they ask. And the answer is this man named Jesus of Nazareth. He's the heir to David's throne. Uh, and sure enough, he begins to demonstrate that he is not just a man, but he is God to come to earth. He is not just David's son, he is David's Lord here on earth. And he promises he will come back again to rule and to reign. And he goes before God on our behalf, this Jesus that we worship here, that we read, that the whole book of the Bible is about, is this coming priest and king. So like David, Jesus is your king, Christian. We, we celebrate that a lot. Uh, like Melchizedek, he's also your priest. We don't say that as much. Sinners cannot go into God's presence without a priest. But what I'm saying today is that because of Jesus, now we can. Here's how Hebrews says it. It says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's the, the real sanctuary. He's sitting there at the right hand of the Father. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord has pitched, and not man. Jesus is the priest that allows us to go into God's presence. So here's how this works. In order to go before God, if you are a sinner, and we all are, you need two things. You need a priest and you need a sacrifice, right? If you wanna ask God for forgiveness, something has to die to pay for your sins. That's why they had that whole system of lambs and things like that. And someone has to go and offer it for you. And what Jesus does is he serves as both priest and as sacrifice for you so you have assurance that your sins are forgiven. Uh, Jesus was on one hand the perfect sacrifice. I mean, a, a spotless lamb had to be offered in your place. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, because that's God's plan. Isaiah 53 puts it like this, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then later it says, because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, he was crucified like a criminal, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He did that on our behalf. And 1 Peter 2 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. Uh, what that means is that as Jesus, the Son of God, perished and died bleeding on a cross, his blood and his death was offered as payment for the sins of those who would trust him. And if your faith is in him, then that death counts as payment for all of your sins once and for all. That's the sacrifice. To receive that salvation, you just must trust Jesus in faith with a phrase like, Father God, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me since your son died in my place? Something that simple can be offered for salvation. Now that, that solves one great problem. Now you have a sacrifice by which you can have forgiveness secured. 
But you still have the other problem. You can't go into God's presence to offer it, right? You need someone to go into God's presence and offer it for you. That is why it is so important that Jesus functions as priest for us as well. The good news is that he is, and he goes to God to offer that sacrifice. This is what Hebrews means when it says in its sixth chapter, it says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, and here's the picture of it, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he is both sacrifice and he is priest who can offer the sacrifice for you. And that is in every way better than the priesthood that Israel had. So what's going on behind the scenes here then is if, if you place your trust in Jesus, if you say, Jesus, I trust you, will you save me? Uh, it's just that simple. You don't have to understand all the complexities of this. What he does is he is sitting at the right hand of his father God right now. Uh, and he would just simply turn to his father and say, my death that you saw so long ago, Father, I offer it as payment for that person's sins. And the Father will say, that person is forgiven. It's that simple, and he will do it for you. Now, that's better in so many ways than the picture I talked about earlier, right? Remember how uh, the lambs and bulls that were offered for sins there, they would cover you for now, but you sin again, you got another problem, right? Uh, Jesus says, or, or the book of Romans says of Jesus' death, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For, and here it is, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. So the difference is that you trust Jesus today, the stuff you're going to do tomorrow is already paid for. And the stuff after that, all the way to the day of your death, the things you could be doing right now, the things you have done once for all, all of it covered. Now, you might remember I said earlier that Israel's priests were sinners too, and that caused a problem as well. Well, Hebrews says that the Lord Jesus solves that as well. It says the former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. We read that earlier. But it goes on to say, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you trust him now, and he's there forever, pleading for your sake, interceding for you, giving weight to your prayers, because now you're one of his brothers. He is there forever in the throne room of God, making your case. That is why anyone who trusts Jesus for forgiveness can go to God, no matter what they have done. And here's how this interacts with your everyday life. This will change your life every day. Here's how Hebrews applies it, right? Sinners can't go into God's presence. It's the big thing we're looking at today. But because of Jesus, hear what it says in Hebrews 4.16. It says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Some translations say, let us go boldly to approach the throne of grace. Have you ever thought about how audacious what we do here on Sunday morning is? We sing and shout to God most high. Why do we get to do that? Because we've got a high priest who goes boldly for us and says, those are my people, Father. Those are my people. We can do it.
And you can go back constantly. If you need stuff, you can go a hundred times to him and ask for the same thing over and over again. And any other father would break down and just say, stop asking. Whatever you do, just stop asking. Right? Our heavenly father says, I will hear it every time because my son's blood pleads for you. If you have sinned again and again and again, you can ask for forgiveness again and again. And you don't have to worry about missing one because all of your sins are covered. You can have dark feelings or feel sadness and sorrow and you can go to him and just tell him about them. Not even with a request, but just God, here's how I feel right now. And he will listen to how you feel because you have Jesus as high priest before. You can gather here with us as comfortably as a child sits down at its parents' table and knows that food is there and they are welcome. That's what Jesus does for you as high priest. Now for some of us, that's like something that we're just treasuring and rejoicing in. Some of you have studied that for your whole lives and you're like, oh, this is one of my favorite things. Uh, I knew though when I prepared this uh, that there would be some of you that I would just lose early on because I realize how technical everything that we have gone through is. Some of us can't even pronounce Melchizedek and we're like, what's going on here? Uh, if that's you, uh, let me just try to explain like what's going on and why we would do something that technical uh, and then I'll try to give you something that you can take home. Like I know some of you probably feel feel like uh, well, I wonder if some of you feel like that like sweet college freshman that walks into Spanish 101 and is like, maybe I'm gonna learn the alphabet today and doesn't realize that she's in Spanish 401 and like the teacher just busted out Don Quixote from the original 1615 and just started reading in ancient Spanish and you're like, well, I just wanted to learn what the little dots were above that one letter. Like, I don't understand. I realize some of you are there right now. Uh, let me explain to you what's going on if that's where you are. And if you're looking at this going, goodness, you lost me like 25 minutes ago, dude. So the Bible talks about its own truth and teaching in terms of food. It uses the analogy of food a lot, right? Um, and my job is to feed you, right? That's a, Jesus says, feed my sheep, and you can feed on this truth. And one of the analogies it uses is that some of the food is like milk and some is like solid food, right? Um, I think we probably all agree that adult food is better than baby food. I think everyone in this room agrees with that. Uh, and yet, you're not going to try to take prime rib and feed it to your 18-month-old, right? Because because milk is nutritious and a baby can digest it. Solid food is nutritious and tastes really good, right? And that's, that's the difference between the two. Some of the truths in the scripture are just like milk rice cereal, like they are easy to digest, they will nourish your soul if you'll receive them. Others are more like New York Strip, whereas they're amazing, they're nourishing, but if you're brand new to this stuff, it's not gonna go down right, and you're gonna be like, well, I, I can't digest that. I don't understand what you're saying. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with how intelligent anyone is, the same way it doesn't have to do with how intelligent the child is. It's just how long have you been feeding on this stuff? Like, how deep can, can your heart go before you can keep digesting all of this stuff? And so what some of us need, I mean, the stuff we just did was, like the filet mignon of Bible teaching. Like it's deep, it's technical, it's awesome if you get it. And if you don't, you're like, what's going on here? And so what I will want to do, I don't want you to go home hungry if what you needed was milk today, if what you needed was pureed green beans that could just nourish you and you can go home. And so here's the, the pureed distilled down version of that. It's very simply, Jesus is the only reason that sinners like you and I can approach God at all. There's a wall between us and God. We can't go to him, except Jesus makes that possible. And what you must do 
is trust Jesus to make you right with God. Uh, Let me explain then how that applies to a few different people and then I'll tell a story that will kind of bring things home for us. Uh, For different people, it'll affect you different ways. Uh, For some of us, you know, I mean, the way it affects our church right now, honestly, is I think we're waking up as a church and realizing that God really hears us when we pray together and that's why we're doing some of this prayer meeting stuff. Like, we can do what we're gonna do on Sunday night because of this. We wouldn't be allowed to hold prayer meetings if Jesus didn't do this for us. It allows us to do that and gives us boldness to do things like pray for great healings, uh, get together and ask that God would revive our church. Why would he be interested in that? Well, he is because of what Jesus did for us. Gives us boldness to do that. It affects your individual lives too. Like for instance, um, there are some people who do not feel worthy to even be here right now uh, because we're all sinners and, and most of us know it, right? Um, they're, like some people would joke and, and they'll say like, oh, you don't want me to go to church. Like the lightning bolt will hit so far and so loud it'll, it'll kill the guy next to me too. You know, like, you know, like people will make jokes like that. Because what they're saying is I am so bad, like I really can't even go in that holy place and deal with those holy people because uh, they're not worthy of it. And if that's you, first of all, I just thank God that you made it here anyway, despite feeling that way. And I wonder if people have kind of given you unsatisfying answers, like, oh, God loves you, just come anyway. Oh, it doesn't matter, just come anyway. And you kind of want to believe that, but maybe it's not satisfying. Uh, I want to tell you that you're not crazy. You're not making this up. You are right that sinners cannot go into God's presence. Like, that's not a fable or a myth. Uh, But the good news is, because of what Jesus has done for you, Anybody's sin can be paid for. Anybody can be worthy to stand before God in full splendor and glory. And that's why we would read calls to worship like we do, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Anyone can do it. What you must do is not place your trust in how worthy or unworthy you are, but how worthy Jesus is as a substitute for you. And then you can come into any church you want to. We hope it's here because we want to have you here, worshiping Jesus in the splendor of glory. For other people, uh, it's, uh, there are some people who feel like they can't go to church or they're nervous about going to church because they don't have nice clothes, right? Or maybe they just don't like wearing nice clothes. Um, like, for instance, we had one of our members one time invited a friend to church, and they told me, like, their friend almost didn't come, and they had to, like, convince their friend to come, and what their friend said was, those people dress nice, and I don't have any nice clothes. Like, what am I going to wear? I'm not, I'm not going there. Uh, and that could be a barrier for some people to come here. Uh, and the truth is, when the priests went before God, like, we're not really making that up either. Like, when the priests went before God, they had to wear some really splendid clothes, right? Uh, and so there's something in the back of our heads that says, like, when we go before God, we probably ought to be wearing some good clothes. You know, we're all demonstrating that right now. Uh, the thing is, If you get too comfortable in nice clothes, or if you feel too unworthy in clothes that aren't nice enough, or if you don't have clothes, uh, you kind of have to come back to reality and just face the hard truth. And here's the hard truth. None of us have clothes that nice, right? None of us has clothes nice enough that we could go before God and he would say, you look good, you're good enough, you look good enough to come into here, right? It doesn't matter if you've got a closet full of pearls or if you keep your other shirt in a shopping cart in the parking lot. None of us have nice enough clothes to go before God's presence. So what we have to do is place our faith in Jesus, in the one who wears spotless white linen righteously before God. 
who pleads for us. Once we've got our faith there, then you can wear whatever, then you can dress as nice as you want to. But our faith has to be in the one who has the true spotless, the true pure garment before the Lord God. And finally, maybe I'll apply it to one third type of person. Uh, some, there are some people, and we've, uh, we've done some things as a church in the past to try to accommodate to this. Uh, several people feel uncomfortable worshiping God in public like this uh, because they're nervous about how the kids are gonna behave. Like that's like real talk for a lot of moms. Um, and in fact, we used to even have like a special worship service just, you know, like let's make this a welcoming atmosphere that you can bring your kids to and if they get crazy, they can just get crazy. Because it can be, I mean, I'm a dad, like I totally get it. Like when you're here in worship and we're all quiet right now and then your kid's like, mom, can I have a pen? Like right in front of the sermon, you know, like it's, it's embarrassing, right? And so there are so many moms out there who just do not even go to church because they're afraid about how their kid's gonna behave back in the childcare. They're afraid about what's going to happen here. And the truth is, uh, it, you could bring like seven kids that you've popped out and put them like right here in the front row, like marching in single file, like perfect behavior, sitting from tallest to shortest here in the front row, singing in perfect four-part harmony in front of the whole church, reciting all of the scriptures that I quoted from memory. And then when the service is over, they each bust out like a handmade card and they give a handmade valentine to every widow in the church. Like you could bring perfect kids in here. And God's verdict of your parenting will still be, you are a sinner. You can't raise perfect enough kids to make you right before God, to make you worthy of coming into his presence. And if you're gonna be worthy of coming before him, it's going to be because Jesus, the perfect son of God, died in your place and he is there in heaven pleading for us. So that's, I mean, there's so many situations like this. I think you get the idea on whatever shoes you're wearing, uh, you can apply it to what you're doing. Let me just tell you one more story about a, a woman that I know. Um, I was visiting a lady in a church one time and she was raised Catholic. Um, and the Catholic church does a really good job communicating the first half of what we talked about today, that sinners can't go into God's presence. Like a lot of Catholics get that deep in their hearts. And that's why they have like the, you know, when you go to confession, you confess to the priest because you can't go to God's presence and confess. And that's, you know, they have a number, you, when you pray, you pray to saints who will go, they've been perfected and they can go to God. That's why they do that. Uh, because they understand we can't go into God's presence, we're sinners. What they're missing is the second half of all this, that Jesus does these things for us so we don't need a priest and we don't need to pray to saints. But that's what she was raised in, that was the habit she was in. And so, you know, when she was praying for something, like there's a whole like um, system that they use for you know this saint is really good at praying about this and this one's good about that and so she would figure out which saint to ask you know uh, Saint Cyprian would you please go to the father and ask him to heal my mother like that's what her prayer sounded like for her whole life and then she went to an evangelical church and she heard the gospel proclaimed and she trusted in Jesus walked away a Christian uh, her, uh, her spiritual life was renewed she's praying more than she ever has before but she's still praying like that Right, and she's you know she's praying to this to Saint Augustine and this to Saint Cyprian and, and all this, and she just all she said all of a sudden it just clicked. She had never addressed God directly in her whole life, and she said I was just sitting there all alone praying through Saint Matthew or somebody, and I just all of a sudden said, God, addressed God for the first time in her life, God. Would it be okay if I pray to you now? 
And if you trust Jesus for forgiveness, the answer to that question is always yes. You can go right to him. He's approached God for you. He's offered himself as perfect sacrifice. You can go whenever you want. So he calls you right now then to place your faith in him. Let's pray.